Hi there. Welcome to Slice of Pie, the podcast interested in psychologically informed environments. It could be professional football, elite sport academies, large multinational companies, or anywhere else performance and well-being are central concerns. And my guest this week has worked across all of the environments just mentioned. Paul McVeigh left his hometown of Belfast at the age of 16 to sign for Tottenham Hotspur, where he was immediately thrown into a training session with Jurgen Klinsmann, who was just been signed after the 1994 World Cup. He made his first start for Spurs up front with Teddy Sheringham, scoring on his home debut in 1997 and went on to represent Tottenham as well as Norwich City, Burnley, Luton Town and Northern Ireland as a player. Since then, he has worked in the media for the BBC, Sky Sports, Be In Sports and Talk Sport amongst many others. He's authored a book, The Stupid Footballer Is Dead, got his Masters in Sport and Exercise Psychology from Staffordshire University and has been a performance psychology coach at a Premier League football academy. Now he spends his time as a global keynote speaker, delivering keynotes and corporate training for the likes of Barclays, PwC, Microsoft, and a truckload of other blue chip companies. At the time of recording, he has done so in 16 countries across three continents. I met Paul during our masters in sports psychology five years ago, and he's genuinely one of the most positive, optimistic, and energy giving people you could meet. It's clear from our conversation how values-driven he is, as well as his passion for the high-performing mindset across environments. We recorded this earlier in the year before COVID had accelerated as a global concern, hence the lack of references to it. And it's actually been quite refreshing to listen through and edit a conversation created in the optimistic world of pre-lockdown. I hope those listening take as much from it as I did. As always, we'll have a first and second half, so we'll break for a half-time breather and discussion of some of the key points before jumping back into the interview with Paul before a full-time final reflection. So, without further ado, let's get into it with Paul McVeigh. Hey Paul, how are you? Embarrassingly well, Pete, how are you doing? You're embarrassingly well. I am, yes, always. I love that. In my day-to-day work, the, the standard response is not too bad. I think that's a British thing, isn't it? Yeah. And what is the inference behind that when someone says they're not too bad? Well, I don't know. I suppose if someone meets, means it literally, then that's, that's quite worrying, isn't it? But uh, I wonder whether it's just become, a, become a, an automatic response. So one of the... Um... One of the ways that we adopt beliefs about ourselves and the people and situations in the world around us is through repetition. So if on a consistent basis over months and years and years, if someone asks you, how's it going? And you say, not too bad, I'm okay, I'm all right, all that, consistently telling yourself that, probably that's maybe what you're going to start thinking and believing about yourself. And, and as we know how the, the belief picks up subconscious ideas about ourselves. And if, if you keep saying that, then that's probably what you're going to believe about yourself. And funnily enough, whenever someone asks me how I'm doing, I say embarrassingly well. It has so many facets to it because, first of all, people laugh. So the start of a conversation, yeah. I'm laughing with you. So straight away, there's rapport. <laughs> second, 
Secondly, they're they're really interested. They're like, well, what do you mean you're embarrassing? Why are you embarrassing? Why, why? What's so good? What? And then you're obviously you can share a few things about what you're doing and how you're doing stuff. And the third thing, as I just said there about the reputation, is that if I continuously tell myself that I'm embarrassingly well, how does that make me feel on a regular basis? So actually, it, it's multifaceted, funny, humorous but also self-serving for me and reinforcing that I have a lot of good things going on in my life. Great. I love it. I mean, it's taken 23 seconds before I've, I've already learned something very valuable from this chat. Um, so, so go on then. Let's, let's go with this. So why are you embarrassingly well at the moment? Do you want a list or do you want a narrative? or Just, 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 give, just give me something. Give me a chunk, an example. Um, I'm a 42-year-old guy. I'm in 100% physical health. I live in Belfast. Just saw my mum for dinner tonight and haven't lived in England for 25 years, which I couldn't do that for 25 years. And so the fact that I could drive five minutes around the corner to pick my mum up, to have some dinner, to bring her back home again, to come and speak to you on this amazing piece of technology, to talk about the life that... I've had the experience we had doing our masters together and the fact that I'm having phone calls today with Korea, Dubai, America about the places and organizations we're going to be speaking with around the world this year sort of makes me feel embarrassingly well. Sometimes I don't really like telling people about it because sometimes you feel like you're getting a big head. And yeah. in this part of the world, that's not something we like doing, especially in Belfast and Ireland. You know, you don't want anybody getting above their station or, you know, too big for their boots. All these phrases that we use in society, probably if we're in America, then maybe we might, you know, celebrate the successes we have a little bit more. So not saying one's right more than the other, but I suppose I just like having a healthy perspective of how grateful and blessed and fortunate I am to have the life I have. Oh, good on you. Well, first of all, that's lovely to hear. Um, because as, as you've mentioned, we've, we've known each other for a wee while and, and it's lovely to hear that you feel that way. And the other thing that I heard there, which I really love is, you know, I think sometimes people can launch straight into what's going on with me as in the kind of the personal, the professional me. But what you started with there is I'm healthy mm-hmm. and my relationships are in, in good health as well. You, you started talking about your, your mum there. So that's, I don't know whether that was conscious or not, but maybe an, an indication of, of having your kind of your priorities in, um, in order? I think one of the, um, the priorities in my life are to have a healthy perspective of just how good most people, and that's a bit of a generalization, but most people who live in UK or Ireland probably have a, a really high quality of life compared to millions and billions of people around the world. So, mm-hmm. you know, so even just the fact that, you know, I'm in my office on my desk, I've got my gratitude journal. That's just something I've been doing over the years because the role that I have in terms of my keynote speaking, but also the work I do in terms of the corporate training and facilitation around our Mindspan program, a big part of that is to show people just how good your normal is. So what a high setting our normal is. And it's really easy to lose perspective, you know, in the day-to-day challenges and struggles that we have. But actually, the more we realize just how good our our normal is, probably gives us a healthy perspective to realize, well, actually, if I can be even more grateful for my life, that's probably going to have an even 
more constructive impact on my happiness and contentment in life. Do you think that you've been able to build that perspective over time? Is that a, a skill that you've worked on or is that was it a moment where one day you saw, do you know what, I've got this new perspective? How did that evolve? It came very much through my relationship with a mentor of mine, a, a really good friend of mine, a guy called Gavin Drake, who whenever I was 25 and playing in the first team in Norwich City, we had just been relegated from the Premier League because we didn't really like it up there. So we decided to we decided to come on out of there, out of the Premier League and gone back into the championship. So we had a great team and, and we should have got, you know, promoted straight back up again the next season. But the mm. way things happen, by Christmas time, we'd only won one game in eleven and the manager was under pressure, the team was struggling. So the manager brought in a sports psychologist and it was Gavin Drake. And first time I met him, I just was so impressed with the way he handled himself, what he shared, his content, the sort of delivery and his style that so much so that, you know, six years later, whenever I was coming out of professional football, he was the person that sort of helped me down this route of keynote speaking and, and professional speaking, as well as all the, the corporate training. And because of the methodology and framework he has for his Mindspan program, that part of that is to do with, you know, peak performance and, and you know, understand the psychology of the most successful people in the world, but also understanding what the research and the academic and empirical evidence says, yeah. what makes people happy. And the simplest way to increase your happiness is to use a gratitude journal or to be more grateful for things that are in your life. So when I came across Gavin, saw his program and realized just how powerful this is, as I said, you know, being self-serving as, as most people are, I thought I'm having a bit of that. So not only do we share it on the program, I also do it myself. I mean, you, you've mentioned the, the Mindspan, the Mindspan, is it the triad? Mindspan triad? Triad, yeah, from the self yeah. Your life psychology and the world psychology, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that a couple of times, and I'd I'd love to love to dig a, a bit more in, into that if you're if you're willing to. But um, what I'd like to do first is maybe kind of wind it back a bit. Yeah. Um, I'd I'd love to understand. I mean, your resume, your background in elite sport, both as a player and support staff, and in the media, together with your current work in the private sector, honestly, make you such a perfect guest for the show and I'd, I'd love to before we get into that meaty stuff maybe rewind it back a bit because you've achieved a lot in your life and it'd be it'd be probably a bit of a challenge to distill it down but tell us a bit about your your journey up until this point how have we arrived at this point so probably the brief version is I left Belfast at 16 so in 1994 I joined Tottenham Hotspur as a, as a youth team player I was one of the few players in the youth team not to have a guaranteed professional contract at the end of my two years in the youth team. So I was someone who, without realizing it, I had a very open mind for things in terms of I was really focused on all I wanted to do was be a Premier League footballer and international footballer. Mm. Really simple. That was my focus. Very determined. But let's be honest really bang average <laughs> as a player <laughs> so, so if I was in all of the teams from 16 onwards I've never been the best player I've never been the worst player it's, you know obviously this doesn't work well let's joke on a, on a podcast but you know I was in the same youth team as Crouchy and you know me being four feet nothing and him being a six feet seven giant you know, <laughs> just couldn't be any different in terms of, uh, of our stature and athleticism so I suppose I read a book when I was 17 by Tony Robbins who I'm sure most people have heard of massive personal development guru in America 
He's worked with, you know, last five presidents and CEO of Sony and Navy SEALs and all sorts. And I read a book of his Awaken the Jam Within when I was when I was 17. A friend of mine gave it to me. And it literally changed the trajectory of my life because I suddenly so it was like the blinkers came off and having a not realizing, having a quite a narrow-minded view coming across from Belfast, probably through no fault of my own or my parents or friends, but quite a blinkered view suddenly read this book and just was blown away. And I suppose the key message of it was stop looking outside of yourself because everything you'll ever need going forward, you already have. Mm. For a 17-year-old kid, first of all, 17-year-old young aspiring footballer reading a book on professional or personal development is probably quite unusual. Having conversations with mum about doing yoga and started that at 17, 25 years later, still doing it speaking to my dad about visualization because he was a golf fan, doing what Jack Nicklaus did and applying that to my life. All the way through, took me through a professional career of nearly 20 years for Spurs and Norwich City, Burnley, Luton Town, Northern Ireland. And, and eventually when I came out, I suppose the common theme over the last 20 odd years has been that I have a very open mind to what I want to achieve and how I want to do it. But also I'm very, very determined to live the life that I have consciously decided I want a career for myself. Mm. Which, unfortunately, in my experience, is quite unusual. Because if I ask most people, you know, what do you want? A lot of people can't tell you. And that's, you know, without being judgmental, it's more an observation. But a lot of people have really no idea what they're doing, where they're going. And so without that clarity, because if you go to the opposite end of that spectrum... The top performers that I've either played with, worked with in business, or just been in around, they're so crystal clear exactly what they want right. and how they do it. Now, their approach can differ and they can be flexible, but no matter what comes across their path, they're going to make sure they still achieve their goal. Opposite end of that spectrum is when you ask most people, what do you want? And eventually they'll come out with a few you know, half-baked things they might have thought of off the top of their head. And then you ask them, okay, so probably if you've had those kind of things, you probably feel successful. And you're going, yeah, yeah, I'd feel successful. And you go, okay, so what's your definition of success? And again, most people would be like, I don't know. Mm. So it's it's something that the open-mindedness as well as being really, really clear about what I wanted to achieve in football, transitioning out of football, now that I'm doing my keynote speaking, you know, really clear that my goal now over the next two years is to speak in 50 different countries across five different continents around the world. And where are you at with that goal then? How many? 16 countries across three continents. Okay. So So you've got got a few to go. I've got quite a few to go. So this year, I want to do about 17 new countries on one continent if I can. That's the plan. And the same again next year. So great. In the months, then you start to realize just how much you need to be doing. Great. I've certainly talked to you before about an organization that I'm involved with called Ennis. And uh, I've I'm uh, seeing them in, in Ghent in a couple of months' time. So depending on where the, uh, the conference is next year, I'll certainly be petitioning them to, uh, to get you along. Uh, not, not just to, to forward towards your goal. I'm, I'm sure yeah. you'll be a fantastic speaker for the conference as well. But one of the, um, the things that you brought up there, which I thought was quite interesting, was about the, the clarity of a, of a goal. And you mentioned that on, a, on an individual level, the clarity of where you want to go or, or what you want to achieve. 
Have you found that as well in your work in the private sector as well with companies? Do you find that if companies don't have a really clear idea of where they want to go, it has a similar, a similar dynamic? Yeah, it's sort of, it's interesting the more work that you do and, and especially in, in bigger organizations. So I'm doing a lot of work with multinationals and because there's just so many people in so many departments that to have a clear joined up strategy of learning development or training of their staff doesn't always happen. So I'll give you an example. I'm currently working with a, a bank that's part of the RBS group and they've asked me to do four keynotes for them at the minute. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously brilliant because they keep inviting me in and keep doing it at different departments. But the other side of that is, is that I know a girl who has been at every single one of my keynotes, which means she's seeing this session because obviously I have a, you know, I have a methodology and I have a way of working through. So if my first session that I deliver for any new, any new team or client or group of people will be one session and then you move into the next set of sessions and through the next modules and then onto the, the next part of the program. Yeah. But every time I go to another department, there's always back to the first step. But because there hasn't been that clear joined up approach of how who's going to be in the room as opposed to just Paul's coming in and do the session and people can be invited or can attend themselves. So without having that clarity of what they want out of it, how they're trying to do it and who can attend is really a struggle. And I'm, uh, I'm starting to realize that not everyone is, is as clear. Mm. Yeah, that's, su- that's super interesting. The, the book that I've just finished reading is Creativity Inc. by uh, Ed Catmull, who's one of the guys who started up uh, Pixar. Yeah. And he was so focused on that point you've just raised about the clarity of what's going on across the business they ended up creating something called Notes Day, which is a day for every one of their, I think something over like a, over a thousand employees, which is enormous for a creativity business. And every one of those 1,000 employees are invited to Notes Day, uh, which is held on their campus every year, where they divide down all of the issues that are going on in the business from the legal department to the storyboarding to the lighting and everyone comes out of that day with absolute clarity about what the business is doing well, what's not doing well, and where they want to go. Okay, and that and that's and that's also the you know the difference probably between a company like a Pixar <laughs> and maybe a whole raft of other companies that, that you wouldn't want to mention. I mean, it takes me on to a question that I've been dying to ask, or a couple of questions that I've been dying to ask, and I think are going to be a kind of stalwart question for the podcast. Yeah. Um, but what makes a great team? What are those ingredients and, and elements that, that make a great team, regardless of whether it's you know, Norwich City playing in the Premier League or a, you know, a, a business in Ireland or a business in, in the UK that are, are striving to achieve? Um, oh, good question. Really good question. Multifaceted is probably the first part, that having the, having the variety of skills, whether that be the people who have the the kind of the drive and determination, and probably going back to that point again, the clarity of what it is, versus the 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 people who who just get on with the jobs and don't really want any kind of leadership role or don't want anyone to kind of or they don't want to be able to in charge of people and don't want to tell people what to do. They just want to be told what to do and sort of like just do this, do that, mm. and. It's funny as as you ask me that question, <laughs> what came to mind was uh, we had a former manager in Northern Ireland called Laurie McMenemy, former uh-huh. 
Southampton manager. And um, <laughs> I remember one of his first training sessions. I think it might have been my first time ever joining up in the Northern Ireland squad, the senior squad. And he said, just remember, lads, <laughs> in football, there's piano players and piano pushers. <laughs> 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 Do you remember which one you are? <laughs> and I was always like, "Oh, am I the pusher?" Uh, you know. But I suppose it's just—it was just a good little analogy to be able to say that you know everybody has their different roles within a team, and that the functioning of what you're doing. And it's interesting because I I get asked to do a lot of stuff around teamwork and around you know what makes because obviously my kind of niche that I that I work in is around the individual psychology and, and elite performance and and what's the mindset that's needed. For mm. to maximize their performance but a lot of times you get asked about the teamwork and i know i'm biased just because of the area that i'm most passionate about and obviously that we studied it all and, and obviously my own experience in, in football but it makes me come back to going i know you need to have the team as the ultimate goal but actually the team is only made up of the individuals within that team and as soon as one person or one part of that team doesn't do the job as efficiently or at a standard that's required, the team doesn't function. Mm. But as soon as the team doesn't function, it goes back to the individual of why you're not doing your job, what can we do to help you do your job, or let's get you out and bring someone in. So that's why, as I said, I'm really biased on this, but no matter what the team is, I really don't believe that you need to look any further than maximizing the individual's mindset. Yeah, that's super interesting. There's definitely a quote somewhere or an interview with Clive Woodward, who obviously won the World Cup with the England rugby team. And I think he said his first priority when he became the coach was before they even focused on some of the teamwork stuff was to get 15 world-class individuals into that team. And, and I know that, you know, that obviously there's the phrase about, you know, the sum being greater than the parts, but that only happens when the parts are functioning. Mm. So, and like you talked about Clive Woodward there, and I would, you know, take your Clive Woodward and raise you a Bill Belichick and say, he, his motto, his mantra is just do your job. Just do your job because the, when the team don't function is when the individual doesn't do the job. If you only have one job to do and it's to stop that person or your man doing that or whatever the, whatever the skill or game or sport is, if you just have that one job and that's all you need to do, if you do it, team functions. If you don't do it, team doesn't function. Mm. For me, the team, of course, it's the most important part and people sacrifice loads of things for the team. But even if I were to step into that kind of psyche or mindset for a second, Pete, I would say, okay, so I had loads of players who weren't the most skillful, weren't the most technically gifted, but they just, what you would call, sacrificed themselves. They did that extra run to sacrifice themselves back to get, you know, do someone else's running or make a tackle that someone else didn't get back for. That is almost like they sacrifice themselves in inverted commas. Mm. I'm thinking it's going, well, the only reason why that person's in the team, because they can do that, but they can't do the other side when you give them the ball. Mm-hmm. So for me, okay, are they sacrificing themselves or are they self-serving and doing what they're good at because that's their individual job? Because if you give them a ball and ask them to dribble around three players, they can't do it. So again, it comes back to the individual what is it that you need to do to function within the team environment? So, of course, teamwork is huge. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, that, you know, there's absolutely no point in doing the teamwork. But listen to Clive Woodward. You need to get the individuals function. Once you get that, then all those individuals together become unbelievably powerful. 
Mm. I think it's an, an important insight to bring to the surface because certainly in our industry, you hear a lot about teamwork and systemic working and systems, et cetera, et cetera, how to bring the best out of a team. And maybe it is sometimes a little bit that elephant in the room that, you know, it's a lot easier to do that stuff when you've got world-class individuals who have got key outlined roles and responsibilities and know what are the job that they're doing in that team and have the, the competency to do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and even if you, if you don't, and this, and this is why, and again, I think it's just, obviously I'm coming out with all of my biases from my life and my career, but as soon as I stop performing, I'm not part of that team. <laughs> now that's obviously different in a, in a work perspective, in a business perspective, because if you have 25 people in a department and one person isn't performing, you don't go, right, okay, come on, Paul, you're out. <laughs> you just see you later. You know, don't be coming back. Obviously, it doesn't work like that in 2020. Mm-hmm. They will be at some point going, listen, you need to be doing your job. If you're not doing your job, then there's going to be some way that that manager or that leader, if it's responsible for that group or that team, is going to start saying, they're not capable of doing the job or they're just not performing their roles. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, move them out and bring someone else in or we need to put all our time and energy into being able to get them up to the level that everyone else is at. It just keeps coming back to the individual. So forget about the team, it's back to the individual. What are they doing? Right then, time for the halftime oranges and a breather. Feel free to pause the recording here and pop the kettle on. For those of you keen to press on, let's take a minute to reflect on what we've just heard. One thing that stood out for me was Paul's point around perspective. I loved his soundbite, getting people to understand just how good their normal is and it being easy to lose perspective amongst the daily challenges and struggles of life. And then it's easy to lose sight of the quality of life that we have in comparison to millions around the world. This reminded me of something that I read in Sapiens by the historian and philosopher Yuval Noah Harari. He writes, One of our most important findings is that happiness doesn't really depend on objective conditions or either wealth, health or even community. Rather, it depends on the correlation between the objective conditions and subjective expectations. He goes on to say, puppets, poets and philosophers realised thousands of years ago that being satisfied with what you already have is far more important than getting more of what you want. For us moderns, he says, our expectations of ease and pleasure and intolerance of inconvenience and discomfort have increased to such an extent that we may well suffer from pain more than our ancestors did. Finally, if happiness is determined by expectations, then two pillars of modern society, mass media and advertising, may unwittingly be deleting the globe's reservoirs of contentment. Quite strong stuff there, and speaking as a marketing strategist, not a comfortable message to read, but I'll try not to take that too personally. In fact, social media is also often a quoted scourge of contentment, with many early studies citing a negative link between social media use and mental health, punctuated by its ability to propagate unrealistic social comparisons that we all consciously or unconsciously use as yardsticks 
to compare our own successes, body image, social success, etc, etc. It's amazing to think that Facebook is only just over a decade old, therefore it might be some time before the long-term consequences of social media use filter out into academic research. But what can we do about all of this? Paul recommends engaging in gratitude, maybe through a journal that you keep for yourself, or it may be letters that you write to others. There is some incredible evidence for the power of gratitude on our mental health. In fact, a 2018 paper by Wong et al in the Journal of Psychotherapy Research found that in a study of 300 people seeking psychotherapy services, participants in the gratitude condition reported significantly better mental health outcomes. There is indication that this may be beneficial on a neurological level, although I've personally struggled to find a replication of these results. According to an article in Nursing Management, when we're expressing gratitude or reflecting on positives, our brains release dopamine and serotonin which trigger positive emotions such as optimism and intrinsic motivation. So some interesting possible mechanisms there. Looping back round again to the evolutionary and historical viewpoint of Harari and Sapiens, I suppose he would say this makes sense. We have evolved as social animals within groups. Therefore, practices that bring us closer to those groups or help us to reflect on the positive aspects or our role within those groups may very well be helpful habits to get into. Right. The ref has blown for the second half, so it's time to dive back into the conversation with Paul McVeigh. Yeah, it's very interesting you, you bring that up. I think there's a really famous culture document, which is freely available to, to see on the internet from Netflix, who were really keen to not communicate that Netflix were a family. They, they didn't like this idea that a company is a family, they wanted to communicate that they were much more like a, a high performance sports team. Um, right. And they, they do go, go to some quite interesting lengths to, to evidence that. And they actually, they say like a, a high performance sports team, if you're not performing for a period of time, then you will be given a generous severance package. And that's out there in, in their culture documents. So it's, it's interesting to see some of these, these new breed startup tech companies coming out of silicon valley who are trying to borrow maybe some of that more you know you you have to perform element from that world of sport but and again it's it's interesting that you say doggy dog and i just say it's normal mm. if i'm not performing then i don't expect to be in the team if no, I'm that's, i don't be expect to be rewarded with contracts yeah that's a great observation certainly that's probably my my background projecting on onto that world yeah very good observation so on that note what's the best team you've been a part of um wow i suppose if i'm gonna talk about a team of in a sporting life then i would probably suggest the two title winning teams but i think that's quite obvious it's, again, it's interesting because I remember when we had the the first year that it won a league title, we won the championship, we got promoted in the Premier League, and we had a, a centre-half called Craig Fleming, who's actually an assistant, uh, our first-team coach to uh, Hasenhutl down in Southampton at the minute. Mm. He used to come in and say, when we were about March, April time, just as we were kind of winning the league, and he just turned around and he said, Maka, see if you could bottle what we have right now, you would be a multi-millionaire. And I kind of, I understood what he meant, 
but it is that X factor that you don't realize how it all comes together. It almost culminates over months and months and months and months, and sometimes it can be years of individual sacrifices and, and working towards something until eventually you get to the point where we were at with like two games to go, we'd won the league, we got promoted, and we didn't really need to perform in those last couple of games. But it was the feeling that he's talking about. It's that feeling that we're all bought in and we're all invested in the one common goal. And I suppose that's where if we're going to talk about a team, it was because we were all working towards the same goal in the same direction, all pulling at the same time. Although that's the kind of the, the nice, fluffy, you know, what everybody sees in the kind of the headlines. But what we didn't see was the people who were in the squad, who weren't part of the squad that the manager wasn't playing because he didn't think they were good enough, who didn't want to be there, weren't part of the team, didn't really like the club at the time. So it's interesting because it's almost because I was part of it and I was getting the rewards and, and obviously I was playing at the time. That made me feel like that was one of the best teams I've ever played in. But then the same thing happened in my last year at Norwich City when I had a second spell there under Paul Lambert. And we actually started that season. After about four games, we were bottom of the league. And Paul Lambert came over. And I've just never seen a guy have such a transformational effect on a group of players. Because he turned what was pretty a decent team but the, gotta say the standards and the professionalism was really low. They were really at the time. And he just came in, and this is a guy who's won the Champions League with mm. Bruce Dortmund, man Mark Zidane out of the Champions League final. His standards were so ridiculously high that in every single training session, the first nanosecond, whenever the standards dropped, he didn't say a lot. And as soon as that happened, he was in, hammered someone walked back off again and just stood there and observed. And then from that point on, everybody was just following his lead. And that also just reminds me, Pete, remember whenever we were studying around the whole what leadership is, and it always used to be about this sort of, you know, larger than life character who could lead and sort of influence people. And uh-huh. then started going, well, actually, is it more the carrot and stick? And sort of just people were beating people in the, in the submission to do what they did through leadership. Yeah. Or that armor in the shoulder. And then actually we're thinking, well, actually leadership's more of a relationship. And it's, you know, you can't be a leader unless you have a followership and all of the ways that you start sort of understanding the nuances of leadership. But whenever I see Paul Lambert, if there was one thing I learned from him in terms of leadership, it was his single-minded focus of what he wanted to achieve. And that was to win the league, get promoted back into the championship. And he dragged people kicking and screaming with him for the entire entire season until we went on a 35-game unbeaten run and won the league. Wow. Do you think the fact that he had that credibility in the game, because Paul had a fantastic career, played for Scotland, Celtic, as you said, won the, won the Champions League. Do you think that gave him the credibility to come in and be quite focused on those, those standards? I think that it was an amazing starting point. But, you know, it's interesting why, because whenever you think about footballers and the, the stereotype of a footballer, and it's probably why I, you know, I, I called my book The Stupid Footballer is Dead because I was always quite upset and offended when people took such a low opinion of me mm. and just thinking everybody who's involved in the world of football is stupid, you know, academically stupid. And I just thought, well, that's not really true. I don't think so. And also, if you walk into in front of a group of footballers, they are so astute and switched on and they will eat you alive within seconds they can work you out, they can see what you want, they can, and they're just so smart, not necessarily academically smart, 
but street smart, you know, mm. they've got body language because of so many thousands of people come up to them all the time. So they're very, very good at understanding people. So in terms of Paul Lambert, it's a great starting point because you think, wow, well, he's won the Champions League, but what's he like as a manager? And then suddenly you saw his impeccably high standards every single day, even a simple thing. And this is a simple thing because in the business world, this is nothing. But in the football world, he came in the suit every day and then he walked out and he just stood there waiting. And for the first moment of people dropping their standards, he was on them. So he would never accept second best in every single thing we did. So it was those standards of professionalism that probably made me put him at the very, very top of why I would say he was the best leader and manager I've ever been part of, which is why that was probably the best team I was ever a part of. Great. To reflect on some of those ingredients, what I'm hearing is you had a, a set of high quality individuals that were pulling towards a, a single goal. You had a guy at the helm who had incredibly high standards that you were all willing to buy into and enact every day on the training ground and then put into to practice on, on the weekends or in the, in the midweek in, in the league games. Yeah. And those ingredients provided great recipe for success. Yep, that's pretty much it. Nailed it. <laughs> there you go. Done. Done. We've done it. Um, what I'm really interested in is, therefore, once you've made the, the transition out of your athletic career into very successful media business also you mentioned you you authored the book as as well the super footballer is dead for anyone listening check it out on amazon or your your local bookshop or or, or my website pete okay all right bill but all good bookshops and some bad ones as well i'm sure yeah yeah exactly but yeah really i mean you know great transition out of of the athletic world because not not all of you know not all of your your professional athlete you know brethren would would be able to say the same thing and I'm really interested to know now that you're spending so much time in in teams within the the private sector within within business within finance within banking without you don't have to name names if you don't want to but have you encountered any teams that you've gone into done a bit of consulting work for and you've gone wow these guys these guys have got it you know they have got a fantastic formula honestly in work, yes. In life, no. Interesting. Very, very few people have I come across in the business world that are nailing it across both areas of their life. And obviously both areas, I'm just sort of dividing their life into that dichotomy of work and personal life. But actually within the work, you're probably going to have four or five elements. Within your personal life, you're probably going to have another nine or ten different elements I think this is maybe why, Pete, I, I was so impressed with Gavin Drake because I've never seen anyone who walks their talk so well. Mm. A lot of people, you know, proclaim to be experts, like putting themselves up on a pedestal to say, this is what I do and this is what maybe you could do and et cetera, but don't, don't necessarily live exactly what they're talking about or what they're preaching. And so whenever I saw how Gavin lives his life in terms of a happily married mom, so that's the first thing. He's got two lovely kids, two of the nicest kids you'd ever meet. He's got a very successful business, this Mindspan business that he's been running for himself probably for 25 years now. And, and that all really originated off of the back of, he had a very successful career in, um, in sales and, and training anyway, but he always had this, probably like a little kind of, you know, a little question at the back of his mind of 
but is this it? You know, he had like you know the nice nice house and had a mortgage with his wife and two small kids. So he had the company car, expense account, nice job, nice perks and stuff. But that question that kept coming back to him every kind of probably Friday night when he's sitting down and have a glass of wine with his wife was, is this it? Is this is this what I'm doing? This I'm kind of thirty. You know, is this is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. And the question that kept coming up every couple of weeks, couple of months, until eventually his wife just asked him a simple question. Well, if you do give up your job and start your own training business, which you say you keep wanting to do and that's all you want to do, what's the worst that can happen? And I think that one question was really what stimulated him to go, well, actually, you're right, because if I give up this job and I'm doing well in and, and you know start this training business that I wanted to start, if after six months I have no money coming in and you know I'm not, I'm not earning or not doing what I want to do, Let's go back and get a job again because he was obviously, you know, doing well on what he was doing. Plenty of companies would have taken him. Mm. And that was twenty five years ago, and and since then he's run a very successful training business. It's been you know delivered in over fourteen countries around the world to over one hundred and forty thousand people. And the key point that everything I'm talking about here is when I see how he lives his life. He's like fifty, I think he's fifty five now, and he just has so much time for each area of his life that that is going back to the point of you said about is anyone really nailing it and the mm. reason why i would say mostly no i'll give an example i went in and did a keynote for a law firm up in leeds just before christmas so you got 50 senior partners of a you know really successful turnover multi-million pounds every single year and i'm saying so just out of interest everyone in here got goals or targets for the workplace every single person in the room 50 partners senior partners put their hands up brilliant okay so tell me this who in here has well thought out well constructed and this is the key written down goals or targets for your personal life and that one person put their hand up Mm. and that is probably just a good example of a lot of people who are in business who are very very successful in their work life and it's a bit like you know the spin spin and plate analogy that their work life's going great How's their fitness? How's their health? How's their home life? How's their relationships? What's their other, what's their hobbies? Like how often do they see the kid? You know, and I'm not saying everybody, it's not like a sweeping statement, but as a general rule of thumb, I would say most people who are doing really, really well in their, in their work life, other parts of the life are probably going, okay, not bad, not great, probably could do with a lot of work. And so when I go back to Gavin, that just, when I see him, it amazes me because he's in really good shape because he takes care of himself. He does meditating. So he has that kind of sense of calmness in all the daily challenges because he runs a business and he's doing all sorts of miles every year, delivering sessions all over the country and all over Europe. But then he still has time for his fitness, still gets the time for his wife, still has time with his friends, sees his kids, his, his son lives in Saudi Arabia, goes to visit him, has always has a smile on his face, deals with people. You know, it's just like, wow. So, you know, a bit like when I grew up, that's what I want to be like. Yeah. So, and that's, and that's why he's, he's such a role model and such a mentor for me because I've never really come across anyone else who's, who, who's nailing life the way he is. Surprised me as well, because you know why? The whole point of the Mindspan program is to understand what the most successful people in life, how they do things. And the way that you generally do well across all areas of your life is you're really clear what you want to achieve in all areas of your life. And going back to the lead scenario, when I asked him, got goals or targets for work? Because if it started every financial year, every single person in a well-run, well-organized business has very clear objectives for what they want to do in their work life. 
And I'm just saying, okay, so what are you doing in your personal life? They're like, I don't know. I'm going, well, you're just applying the same framework or methodology to your personal life. But most people have no idea what they're doing, what they're going to work for. They're just going to work. And let's be honest, most people are just trying to get through the day. Mm, I mean, that's super interesting, that insight into how focused people can be in their professional lives. And I'm sure, you know, this translates really well into probably what I'm sure you observed a lot in your athletic career, people focusing just on that athlete part of their identity, but then in the the working world, just focusing on the professional part of my identity, but not leaving myself enough time to think about those other other bits in my my pie chart, you know, my personal self, the the exercise and fitness self, the the friends, the family member, yeah. the the supporter, etc. And the interesting thing about that, Pete, is that, that I don't know why I became aware of this as I was, maybe the conversation was happening with Gavin when I was 25, 26, because this subject of psychology and personal development, you know, it's, I've, I've just always loved it. And I kind of realized a long, long time ago that really the best investment that I could ever make is just in me. And when I say in me is in my psychology and my mindset and my attitude of what I learn, how I understand how people function, because the more that I invest in that, the better quality of life I seem to have. Mm. So whenever I think about people transitioning out of sport or partners transition, and so for instance, I was speaking one of the big four today, speaking to one of their team members, and they were saying that actually one of the courses that they run is for partners who are five years away from retirement. And they're talking about what can they do and how can the business help them transition away from being a very successful person in a multi-billion pound organization to suddenly stepping out of work and they're retired and they don't come back into work and what do they do with their lives? And I'm saying, well, that's really interesting because whenever I'm coming out of football, one of the things that I realized probably way before I stopped playing was that my identity cannot be solely as a professional footballer Mm. because I don't know why this sort of came across my path or why I was aware of this, but in my mid twenties, I understood that professional football is an extrinsic event because I cannot, no matter how much I want to, give myself a professional football contract. I can put myself in the best position. I can be as fit as I can be. I can score as many goals as I can. I can give myself the best possible opportunity for a football club or a football manager, chief exec to come along and say, Paul, we'd like to sign you. Here's a contract. But it's still an extrinsic event, which Mm. means... If I'm aligning my entire identity, which is very easy to do when you're a professional footballer, by the way, because it's so easy to get caught up in that little bubble and all the glamour and and the, let's say, the benefits that come along with being a professional footballer, it's very easy to wrap your identity up in it. But of course, when you realize that your identity is an extrinsic (laughs) event of a professional footballing contract, well, actually, if... I get this stage and we're all going to get there at some stage. And for me, it was at 32 whenever I was starting to get a bit slow, a bit overweight, a bit too, you know, a bit over the hill. And then the <laughs> mipper snappers were coming in and running past me and knocking me off the ball. And actually, I just thought, you know what? I've got to the point where I've sort of, I've done what I wanted to do. I'm happy with from my lot and I'm going to decide to move away from football. And if I have 10 things that I believe I am in my identity, whether it's Irish, 
a son, a brother. I was a student at the time doing my, doing my sports science degree. I was a, a landlord. I was learning the piano. I was learning the guitar. I was doing all these different things. So I didn't just see myself as a professional footballer. So even when I decided to stop doing it, out of the 10 things I identified as myself, as Paul McVeigh, suddenly one thing comes out. I still have nine things that I'm carrying all my life with. And I think probably a big reason why a lot of people either struggle transition out of the military, struggle transition out of a partner, out of a multi-billion pound organization, or athletes transition out of sport is because their whole identity is wrapped up in what they do as a job. And as soon as that's the case, because all jobs, all professional contracts are all extrinsic events, if it's just based on that, then there's a real serious issue there. Well, is that a key tenet or a key pillar within the mind span triad that you use when you go into businesses is to get the individuals within those businesses to think about those other part of themselves? No, because most of the people we work with aren't transitioning out of something. Most are trying to get to the pinnacle. So most of the organizations are trying to improve performance you know, most kind of, even if it's an MD, partners, whoever it is, they're still trying to keep improving. Whereas I'm talking about someone who's about to step away from a business, someone who's step transition out of sports, someone who's stepping away from, you know, the end of their career. That ultimately, when I'm saying identity, remember what we started on the conversation at the very start in terms of how are you? I'm embarrassingly well. That's a belief that if I keep saying to myself, I'm probably going to keep believing that. So the identity that I have is just a belief that I have about myself. So really we're talking about the beliefs that we create for ourselves. And again, how do we create beliefs? I don't know what your understanding of it, Pete, but the only way that I believe we create, (laughs) it's hard to say I believe how we believe about ourselves, but um, something, the way I would define a belief or the way that Mindspan and the team I'm working with, we define a belief as something you accept as true or real. Okay. Only something that you accept as true or real, then we all have completely different beliefs. And yet we'll have beliefs that are helpful and effective and constructive for our lives. And of course, we're going to have beliefs that are actually quite damaging, quite destructive and actually quite limiting. And I suppose when we start working with people around their beliefs, the question is, does your belief system allow you to create the life that you're wanting to create? (laughs) When actually the, the precursor to that is actually, have you got any idea what you're trying to create? How do you even know what beliefs you need to create for yourself? So I'll give you an example. Whenever I started off in the youth team, we had a, a, a young guy playing with us. The first year youth team with me, a guy called Rory Allen. Do you remember Rory Allen? If you yes. don't, you do, yeah. Okay. I do, yeah. The name rings a bell, yeah. Well, I was, I was a prolific championship manager player around the time that you were, you were, you were a wee bit older than me, Paul. So I was probably still, still uh, studying for my GCSEs and playing uh, championship manager. Some and, people uh, yeah, live yeah. younger, but yes, I am older than you. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, so Rory and I were in the same youth team together. So just to give a wee bit of context for this, is that on my first day training at Tottenham Hotspur was in July 1994, and Jurgen Klinsmann had just signed for us after the World Cup in the USA. Now, the first team weren't in, so the press had all turned up because it was Klinsmann had just signed, and they needed him basically doing some you know trainings in, in the training gear, etc. So my first training session was training standing next to Jurgen Klinsmann, a World Cup winner who's just starred in the USA 94. And I'm standing next to him. And the internal dialogue that I was having, Pete, was going, there's no way in the world I'm ever going to be a professional footballer if that's what you need to be like. Wow. So as a limiting belief, 
it was pretty limiting because I was only there. I'd left all my family and friends in Belfast and joined Spurs in London just to be a professional footballer. And yet the belief I had about myself, completely unaware, by the way, I had no conscious awareness of this was my belief going mm. back, was that I had no belief at all that I was ever going to be a professional footballer because Jurgen Klinsmann was standing next to me. So that's the first part of it. Going back to Rory Allen, Rory was always the kind of the best player in our team. So when we were in the first year youth team, he got into the second year youth team. So he was in the team that won, got to the FA Youth Cup final and I didn't get in it because I wasn't good enough to get in that team. Then in the second year, I got into the second year youth team. Then Rory got into the reserves in that year and I wasn't good enough to get in. But then the next year, I signed my first professional contract on a crazy £180 a week. Get, get me anyway so and, and then on that year in my first year as a professional in the reserves I'm sitting at White Hart Lane watching Spurs play Manchester United in the Premier League live on Sky Sports Rory Allen's made his debut and scores against Manchester United in that whole team with Beckham, Scholes, Giggs, Keane and all the rest of it mm. now I'm watching my mate score a goal in the Premier League and in a split second in my head I thought wow, if Rory can do that, so can I. Three months later, I'd made my Premier League debut up front with Teddy Sheringham against Aston Villa. Two games later, a score on my home debut against Coventry City. And that, for me, just shows the power of beliefs. But also, going back to it, when I'm talking about the beliefs that we have about ourselves, I'm saying, do your beliefs allow you to create the life that you want to achieve? Because if your belief is that you want to have a six-bedroom house and a million pound in the bank and a, a Ferrari on your drive, but your belief is, but well, I'm probably never going to do that, probably not going to happen. So that's yeah. why it's so, so important to understand how we actually form beliefs, what it is. And so the three ways that we would say you form beliefs is through repetition. Because if you keep telling yourself something, you're probably going to start believing it or if if someone else keeps telling you, you're probably going to keep believing it. Um, through an emotionally charged experience, you know, like a Rory Allen, suddenly I'm sitting there going, wow, if he can do that, I'm seeing my mate. I'm cheering for him because my mate scored in the Premier League against Man United. Emotionally charged experience. I'm going, if he can do it, so can I change my belief. And the other way is just adopting the view of someone else. The amount of times that I've just listened to someone on a podcast or listened to someone in a seminar or in a class or read a book or whatever it is. And I went, well, I think that's a good idea. I'm just going to do that. So it's almost like just adopting the view of someone else. And that's now my belief. So this is the other side of, you know, just understanding how powerful they are because actually our beliefs are running our lives and most people probably aren't aware of exactly what they're doing. And just moving the, the focus out into a bit of a bird's eye, looking at the, the system or the kind of the culture of a, an organization, do you think a good first step is to work on the the individual limiting beliefs of its key people? I suppose that would be, from a strategic point of view, be focusing straight away on the kind of the less unhelpful beliefs where I'm more of around that kind of Martin Seligman positive psychology of wanting to focus on what they do well, what they can improve, what we can actually look to achieve, what we want to achieve, rather than all the things that are going wrong. So definitely, and again, it's only just part of, you know, it's one element within a bigger framework of just how probably the most successful, the happiest people, the most content, most fulfilled people that I've ever seen, ever come across, researched, worked with, this is what they're doing. And that one element 
is only one aspect of it. So in terms of the belief that they have about themselves, that they are capable of achieving what they want to achieve. But then that's all one of, you know, a hundred other different subjects or tenets or pillars of what's going to allow them to be successful. And again, one one aspect of that is, do they even understand what that success looks like for them? Great. Well, look, I mean, some fantastic insights there. We're, we're running to the end of the, the hour together. I've just got a couple of kind of quick fire yep. uh, questions just to, to end the podcast. Gonna... Nation Street or Ammerdale? Yeah, well, because I'm really interested to see the, the different answers that we get back. Well, but the, uh, the first one is, and I suppose it's less of a question, but finishing off the sentence. Yeah. Uh, the first one is success is? Balance. Success is balance. My answer, yeah. Success is balance for me. When I was 16, the success was being a Premier League international footballer. From 32 onwards, success is balance because I didn't have any balance up to 32 because 99.9% of my life was on football. Coming out of football, all I want is balance. So I don't want to be a multimillionaire. I don't want to spend all my time working. I don't want to spend all my time lazing around. I don't want to spend all my time in Belfast. I want to be traveling. I want to have a bit of money. I want to do some property stuff, I want to have some family time, I want to have some holidays, I want to be traveling the world doing different speaking things. I want to help my community, give some back. I want to do some spiritual stuff for me. I want to do some physical stuff. I want to do some personal challenges. So yeah, it's balance. I love it. Okay, second one. Teamwork is the most fun thing I have in my life because when I do any kind of training or anything that I'm involved in, when I do it by myself, it's like, oh, this is okay. As soon as I do it with other people, the enjoyment factor multiplies by 10. I love it. Fun and balance. That's not bad to get in your life. That's not bad, eh? Okay. <laughs> it's going, it's going, up, going up on the Jackson family whiteboard in the kitchen, certainly for the next week. I love yeah, it. Good. Well, look, Paul, thank you again so much for sharing your, your time and your insights today. It's really, really appreciated. And look, absolutely best of luck with all of your different endeavors, all of the plates that you've got spinning, including the important family ones and the health and the fitness as well. Best of luck with it all, and uh, and thanks again. No pleasure. Where do you send the invoice to? <laughs> it's in the post. Okay. It's in the post. It's in no, the post. no, not your invoice to me. My invoice to you. <laughs> it's in the post. I told you. Um, look, thanks again, Paul, and uh, look, have a have a good one. Have a great year. You man. If you're still here, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Slice of Pie. If you're listening from an Apple device, a review on iTunes would be hugely appreciated and will help others discover these conversations as well. So what can we look back on after the final whistle? The first thing that stood out for me was Paul's use of goals and values. Like the rest of us, Paul has measurable goals that he can work towards, like his ambition to speak in 50 different countries in five different continents. But in the backdrop of his goals, he has very clear values around balance, family, community, traveling, personal growth in the speaking world, giving back, physical health. It reminded me of some ACT passages from the Happiness Trap book by Russ Harris. Apologies, I've mentioned this book a few times on the podcast now. I'll try to start varying my references a bit more in future as you'll probably think I've only read one book. But here are the passages. Harris writes, There's a potential danger in telling inspirational stories. 
The danger is in the way we define success, whether we're talking about artists, doctors, athletes, business people, rock stars, politicians, or police officers. Inverted commas, successful people are typically defined in terms of the goals they've achieved. And if we buy into this limited definition, then we're condemned to a goal-focused life, a chronic frustration punctuated by fleeting moments of gratification. So Harris invites us to consider a new definition of success. Success in life means living by your values. Adopting this definition, he writes, means you can be successful right now. You know when you are acting on your values, and that's enough. And it sounds like Paul has got this great balance of goals to give him drive and focus, but not being too defined by whether he achieves those goals or not because of his underpinning values that can always point the way forward. Secondly, and related to the above point, Paul had this incredible poignant moment after reading the Tony Robbins book very early in his career, and I'm quoting back from the podcast now, to stop looking outside of yourself because everything you need you already have inside you. Paul stresses at great length how he's no longer interested in being defined or to divine his own self-worth through factors that are outside of his control. So this internal locus of control, combined with the strong values he can live every day and every week, seem to feed into the epically positive and optimistic and panoramic perspective he has on life. Inspiring stuff. Well, that's enough reflecting for this week. Thanks again for enjoying another slice of pie with me and looking forward to putting out the next episode in a week's time. Hopefully see you then. In the meantime, thanks for listening and have a good week.